a stuff. 200 grain burger hybrid target. Yeah. That's almost going pretty slow well, though. And, and 3000 feet per second. I guess it's not slow. And technically <laughs> you guys aren't even shooting them the benches. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You just you, you put the gun down there and you know if you read the internet all you got to do is get the gun, put it on the bench <laughs> and you'll shoot really well. This that's is a, what I was trying hey, to point Luke, out. Luke, Luke was saying they pull the trigger like this. Welcome to the Shoot Hunt podcast. As always, I'm your host Ryan Avery. Ryan Avery. And my color commentator today is Jake Mushaney. <laughs> Are you ready? I've been ready since 9 a.m., sir. How fat is your ass today? I knew that was coming, and, I, and I, I'm embarrassed. You know, because you, you never want to say it can never happen. I mean, you know, the chances of getting violently murdered by a bunny are low. <laughs> But, but never zero. <laughs> We're bringing up some straight bullshit. <laughs> Dude, if it ain't hunting clothes, my wife buys it for me. But your, your wife bought that color for you? I just said, give me some Crocs. She's just way too comfortable with your gayness then. Gosh, I got a really long tongue. <laughs> She's good. We fucking good lord. Anyways, yeah, the, the 330 Edge Plus P is far less fussy than it seems to be that big Terminator. I think that's a sweet spot, too. And especially if you're trying to avoid the cost of the ammo and stuff for the uh, Lapua Improved and you don't really want to fire for them 100 rounds. It's not the recoil with brakes, but it's fatiguing mm-hmm. fire forming with a muzzle blast of the Lapua to the Lapua Improved. I don't know why. You wouldn't think it would be. But yeah, one time I sat down and did 65 in a row. Never again. Ask Nick. I was about yeah. to say, luckily we don't have to do that yeah, anymore. Fucking anymore. Nick. He, I traded him a jacket for my fire foreman, a Sitka jacket I had. And uh, he said, he sent me a picture with a gun in the tube. Not fucking worth it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you got off better than I did. Why? So well, he fireformed some brass for me in, in my 6BR Ackley bench rest gun. Piece of cake. In fact, I wanted two firings on the brass, and I didn't have any time to get it done. When he called in his favor, I had to chamber and a barrel for him and thread a muzzle. So he came out okay on that. Uh. <laughs> yeah, his, his brain's still bleeding, but he's okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, time-wise, it was probably about the same time investment. There's not really overhead in either one of what you're – well, I guess on his side, he's putting powder and bullets in there. Yeah, I don't know. He sent me this weird little Seiko action with a protruding extractor and all kinds of stuff. Oh, so it wasn't, so it wasn't an easy wasn't go. A, and the barrel was so skinny as I'm, I'm cutting <clears throat> the muzzle, threading it. You kind of know when you move the compound a certain distance that you should see chips and stuff come off. If it doesn't, that's a big warning sign. Mm. If you keep pushing it, all of a sudden, it's going to snap back and overcut it. Yeah. So, so you're flexing the barrel while you're pushing yeah. into it, trying to cut it. Well, the barrel was about this big. So, what do you do in that? What do you do in that situation? You just let it sit there for a while. You go or do slow. Do you change the speed? No, you go slow. And I finished it up with a thread file. Oh <laughs> shit! Because <laughs> not my first time. I've had that happen before. And mm. Taylor was talking about that too. Oftentimes, we'll do what's called a a, a, a spring pass. We leave the, it, the, the, the compound or the cross slide, whatever you're using, on the same setting and make one more pass. Mm. And sometimes it cuts, which just meant that it had been pushed away before. Yeah. So, yeah. I guess that does, doesn't this basically prove the fact that a, a wider diameter barrel is stiffer than a pencil barrel? Oh, yeah, clearly. Which should result in better shooting? Yeah, I think so. Although but we I'm, still get those people that want to run the stupid thin number four barrels. 
There's, yeah. There is nothing out there proving that point. Well, I'm just talking about from a deflection standpoint. Oh, I, I see what you're saying. So he's literally saying that when he you're machines a straight. pencil barrel on the muzzle threads, that he'll make a movement on the thread cutter, but no threads get cut because the barrel is flexing in a constant movement. Like it's literally in a curve like mm -hmm. this, and it stays that way while it's spinning because of the pressure from the hmm. thread cutter. That's what he said. But that doesn't happen on a, on a, on a thicker barrel. A good machinist would figure that out. Well, he would just well, explain how they handle it. <laughs> I did. But what it's saying is, is that that fucking pencil barrel is flexing. Well, they all flex. That's the whole thing. That is, doesn't happen on a thicker barrel. Yeah, not, not anywhere near as much. I mean, to your point, they all flex a little bit, but this thing was flexing so much it wasn't cutting. And I knew if I kept cranking it in, typically you take a pass, okay, it didn't do anything, it's still tight, another pass. If I would have kept going, all of a sudden it would have cut five thousandths, and then I would have had to cut it off and start over again. Hmm. So there's a podcast out there about that. You know those <clears throat> that A system or the shit that yeah. Gunworks is doing with that little chamber piece on yeah, the front the extension, just, yeah, the chamber extension. Well, that machine does that for Wolf Precision Wolf too. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ace, they make the Ace for Wolf. Oh, it's called the Ace. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. They make that piece. Anyways, that's supposed to get rid of that. Whatever. What do you call that? The deflection or the the deflection the, we're talking about is on the opposite end of the barrel, not the muzzle end or not the not the chamber. Oh, I, end. I see. We're talking muzzle break threads. Just when you're threading it, but there is something yeah. to do with that. Cuts out basically your bore is concentric every time because it's just that piece. It's not a long well, run. The bore, the chamber, the bore is on the piece rather than in the barrel. I guess if you don't know how to dial in a barrel, that would fix that. But mm. if you dial in your barrel and cut it right, it'll be straight. I'm not saying the system is a bad system. I'm, I, I can see an advantage in a mass production environment because the trick is always, how do you take the care of a custom one-off setting up the lathe and do it quickly? And I'm sure that's their way of trying to get there. My question mm. is, wouldn't that be just more tolerance stacking with threads? Because now you're putting a barrel onto that little barrel extension that's putting a threaded into the receiver. In theory, because you think about it, the threads are going to stretch and this and that, but evidently they've had pretty good results with it. So, mm. um, yeah, I, I don't really even like barrel nuts, but I, I the results. There was a, a guy on a particular forum that we had this. If I started it, we had this big discussion about barrel nuts versus shouldered and i think shouldered is probably better probably holds a little better but the barrel nut guys were oh no 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 and went on all the reasons why they thought it was why and so somebody took a good shooting bench rest gun short range bench rest gun uh, threaded it put a barrel nut on it and when he went out and shot it it shot the same it didn't make any yeah. difference but i think if they're both torqued properly there's probably not a lot of difference yeah i i think the differences in the barrel would probably overwhelm any differences it just as i think about it i'm thinking that nut stretching and you know when you tighten a barrel up to a receiver the first few threads are all that hold it but they stretch and they they hold against that shoulder and that's what holds it nice and square with the barrel nut so if you think about it, if you're tightening it i'd think the nut would deform because that's the thinnest part so i think the nut is going to stretch a little bit and if the nut stretches is it actually square up with the shoulder and it might be so minuscule i mean this may be one of those things that technically correct but doesn't matter i think the nut is the most important part of that because you'll have like you'll have a barrel manufacturer that makes the barrel and threads it for remage let's say so that's just remington threads on a savage style with a nut and then you can buy the nut 
from any number of places that's going to work on this, but every nut has a different type of tightening method. It is made out of a different material, manufactured in a different way. It's almost like if you're going to make a a remage barrel like that, that you should also be making the nut that you've mm-hmm. tested with your application. Because if some of these guys have elaborate ways of putting a, a fancy wrench on there because they want their nut to look different. Mm-hmm. So they have a fancy custom wrench that goes on the fancy nut. And not all wrenches and nuts have the same amount of surface area engagement. Torque is not always the same. Just like with Tika rings versus other rings, you have to actually test how much ring is touching the scope to figure out the torque spec on the on the screw and the type of screw changes and all that good shit but when you buy a barrel it should be tested with the nut that they make for yeah it. and i think yeah i agree and when they do uh, that it probably works fine it's just guys talk about you know first thing you say i don't want a gunsmith involved well well who do you think chambered and threaded the barrel you're about to install on your receiver and the, insta- the installation part is easy a shoulder prefit is easier you just tighten it up Torque it and you're done. So well, the big thing about the Savage and Remage that you're not talking about is it's fucking ugly. <laughs> well, <there's laughs> so that. that's why I don't want it. But for every person on Rockside that says, "Oh, I bought a prefit and it went so well," there's one guy saying, "Mine shoots like shit, or it doesn't face up, or it doesn't shoot right. The head spacing's fucked up." So it's like fifty-fifty. Yeah, we get them. The ones we see in here, we've had several come in. They want us to just install the barrel, and we say, "Okay, as long as it tightens up in head spaces, that's fine." If it's got to go in the lathe because it's too long or too tight, then we have to dial it in, and you know the cost goes up quite a bit. Well, you already said it. it's it's the it's the garage mechanic trying to save a buck. Yeah, the whole idea behind a pre-fit is the fact that it was made on a CNC in mass to bring the cost of the barrel down. Well, uh, it's made in in a CNC in mass, one after another after another. Barrels are not dialed into the way that you guys are doing it here. They're not dialed into the ten thousandth and so on and. It's never going to be the same quality. These guys are trying to save a buck, and that's never going to get you there. Well, yeah. will a couple thousands matter? That's always seems to be the question. <laughs> it depends where in it headspace is. or what are you talking in the about? Headspace. Yeah, I, I, what's well, the what's the min max? It's, for most? it's zero to four thousand. So is four thousand. Yeah, you're, you're trying to get me to bring up my rant about don't make your chamber too tight. <laughs> that's okay though. I mean, there's well, a, there's there's a here. spec on everything. Yeah, but I mean. That's always the key. And if you don't, you know, your action has to play. If it's not a bad action or, you know, they, you said Tika seem to be pretty square. Mm. I know there's a lot like people bring up Curtis's all the time and I'm not trying to bag on any actions. I just read what I see. I've never put a prefit on any gun. I'm not a gun plumber. I bring it to the professionals like Blaine. So they put those on there and then they inevitably have a problem with them. And is it the barrel or is it the action? No, at it's, that point? it's probably variations in the action. And, uh, that's why that you know here we'll do bat machine, and, and even though we can cut it to the numbers on the print, we're still going to grab an action off the shelf and headspace it and make sure it fits in times. And that's, that's why we offer them too because we can do that. Yeah, so. because we know they're going to come out right. You know, I forget who was it that said, so a famous gunsmith. You don't want the phone to ring. You know, <laughs> when it when it goes out, the or the only phone call you want is hey, this thing shoots great. When there's mm. a problem, it's just exponential amount of work on it. And uh, that's one of the concerns with prefits. And some of them shoot fine. I guess that's the problem. I mean, how many factory guns have you bought that are hammers? So for whatever reason, whatever tolerance is lined up, it shoots really well. And, and But you're taking a chance on that. And that's why mm-hmm. when we do it, we stand behind it. I, I mean, I don't care how long it takes. We're going to make that gun shoot. If it needs a new barrel, a new bit, bit whatever. That's what you're paying extra for. So rather than buying a shouldered prefit, that may or may not headspace and may or may not shoot 
once you get that prefit on your rifle, are you going to be able to call that barrel manufacturer? They're going to walk you through the whole installation process. They're going to say, oh, did you develop a load and all this bullshit? You don't have anybody to go to to fix a problem yeah. if you have one, really. You're doing it yourself. It's not built by one person. That's what the difference is. Walking in unknown is you can you can talk to somebody, and we're going to take care of it if we put the barrel on. You might spend 100 or 200 more on machine work, but it's Yeah, it's customer hand. service. And, right. I mean, we will make it right, They're just period. We've had good results, though, with our guns. I mean, I keep – and these are hunting guns, mm-hmm. and – they're routinely shooting sub half minute at 650 yards. It's funny because we've got to preface what Bladen says like that by the fact that Bladen cannot lie. Yeah. Like he, well, is, he is incapable of fucking lying. And on that note, before it's cost we, me money because he's incapable sure, of lying. Sure I, I have listened to Blaine's phone calls or been on Blaine phone phone calls with Blaine to customers. And I'm like, oh boy, oh boy, that's going to cost some money. <laughs> oh, that thought is in the back of my head too, but. Uh, it's kind of like the load dev with that guy that I talked to. I felt so bad because they, you guys have done a load dev. He called me and asked me about a bullet, and he changed his whole load dev. But he did end up paying oh, for the new for load dev. But mm. I made you guys do a lot more work. But we probably better introduce Blaine Painter. He's the pilot, musician, benchrest shooter, general manager. Is he, is he the general manager at Unknown Munitions? He kind of, he kind of appointed himself to that title. <laughs> I'm not really sure. <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, yes, yes, he is. Did I miss anything, Blaine, that you, uh, you're you out there doing? Well, I'd like to hunt and fish more than I am. Oh, but... shit, I know. <laughs> yeah, I'll, yeah, me too. Me too. We need, it. we need to help Blaine poke something this year. Well, that, that sounded bad. <laughs> <laughs> with a bullet. We're going to poke it with a bullet. Yeah. That... Poke it with a bullet. Context yes. is important. Maybe, maybe you could take him on that cow hunt late, late or something. <sighs> Can I get a tag? There's... um. This cow hunt we're talking about, it'd, you, you'd be good. You, yeah, Montana, you definitely get a tag. I mean, I, I'm a snob when it comes to deer. If it's not nice with an elk, that's the first thing I can shoot, I'll take. <laughs> we're talking cow. That's a cow hunt. That's like, fine. Yeah, it's a it'd meat, be meat hunt. January, February. <laughs> oh, yeah, that'd be great. And it's easy. You drive around, spot them, kind of stock them, shoot one. Get them something. Be good. Yeah. Yeah, Blaine. He does, a lot. he does a lot for us. You're due. So can you can you get me close enough so I can take my Browning no. 71 and 348 Winchester? <laughs> no, it's got to be. got to shoot that 600 yards. Ah, it has to be a 6 UM. That's all they're allowed to hunt <laughs> with anymore. <laughs> 22 or 6, that's all. No, you just got to be able to shoot to probably around 600 yards. Drag out my heavy bench rest gun. You got to well, drag it. We're now, driving you, around. We've done some 600-yard stocks and some two-mile stocks. We're going to have Jessica yeah. six five Psalm improved. We got the rum. You can take any rifle. Yeah, that'd be yeah. fun. Yeah. Uh, we'll try to do that. It's interesting, too, that, that you know, I shoot the 1,000-yard bench rest, and I mean, all the time. And, and I've shot well, and I've had my ass handed to me, too, because that's mm-hmm. just part of the game. Nobody gets very cocky in that sport. But all the guys out there that shoot 1,000-yard bench rest, we all get real squeamish when you start talking about shooting animals past six or 700 yards. No, I guess not everybody. It's just that we've seen so many things happen out at the range. Your gun is dead on. You just shot 100 last minute. You put 10 shots inside of 7 inches, you know, and the group may have been a, a 3.9 or 4.2, which I've done. You think, hey, I'm there. And then you come out an hour and a half later, and your bullet is a foot off of where it was before. Mm. And, and you can't see any difference. The mirage looks the same. The winds, every, I mean, you, you can't pick it up. And so, which brings up another point. Those are yeah. those are small bullets. Mm. Generally go with a bigger bullet, well, higher BC. You two, buck the wind a little better. Yeah, but a 200-grain burger hybrid target. 
Yeah. That's almost going pretty slow. Well, and and 3,000 feet per second. I guess it's not slow. And technically, <laughs> you guys aren't even shooting them the benches. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You just you, you put the gun down there, and you know if you read the internet, all you got to do is get the gun, put it on the bench, <laughs> and you'll is, shoot really well. This is like, what I was trying hey, to find Luke, out. Luke, Luke was saying, they pull the trigger like this. Uh, no, there's no trigger pull. They you, pull just, the trigger like this. you just pinch between the thumb and forefinger. Be, before yeah. we jump into all that, you got to give a brief, brief synopsis about Blaine Painter. Where'd Me? you come from? What'd you do in your life oh, to get to this point? I was born in Southern Oregon yep. when it was a cool place to be. And uh, yeah, I went to college. And I started out life as a music major, believe it or not. And, and after a year at University of Oregon, when it wasn't such a liberal place, was like, you know, this isn't what I want to do. What I really want to do is go fly jets in the Air Force. And so, and I was, I was a big time nerd. You know, I, I just, just was. That's just how, you know, academically you still are all this stuff. Yeah, I know. But that's, <laughs> but see, once once you get through, once you get in college, being a nerd is really cool. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so anyway, so I, I, I go through and uh, do that. And, and yeah, they let me go in the Air Force and fly airplanes for 24 years. I yeah. always, I always ask my, when you, cause you were an officer, you have yeah. to be an officer to fly, right? Right. Does every officer in the military have to go to that military academy? No, there's three commissioning sources. There's ROTC, which is what I did, where it's on a college campus. Then there's officer training school. If you have your degree, you can go through. It's about a 90-day course. Okay. And then there's the uh, the academy for the— What's it called? There's a, there's a name for the— Well, there's, yeah, service academy. There's Air Force Academy. No, like the the one, the big college that all the guys— Oh, the West—what's the West, West Point, Point of Air Force? West Point. Oh, it's, just, it's, it's in Colorado Springs. It's, just, it? it's Air Force Academy is all okay. they call it. Oh, okay, so West Point is branch-specific. Yeah, West Point is Army. Oh. Yeah. That's the real branch? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why that's the one I know about? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, you remember, you know, you know, there was a movie that's, I don't even remember, because before I was born, it was No Time for Sergeants, and that was a big thing. It's, well, the, the armies are real fighters, the Air Forces are just the helpers. And, and you know what's really funny? <laughs> that's true. The only reason that their F-15s and F-22s, which are considered the ultimate pinnacle of Air Force, their sole job is to protect bombers and transports so they can get through so that kid with an M16 can occupy his three square feet of ground. And that is the hierarchy, you know? Right. What is What year did that switch over from the Army flying to the Air Force? 47. 47. It's geeky that I know that off the top well, of my head. Well, I mean, it, I'm sure that's kind of beat into the... Oh, yeah. I always tell people, have you ever heard of the Army Air Force game? Me neither. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard of the Army-Navy game. <laughs> yeah, no. Nobody... Hey, what's the, what's the oldest guy that either of you saw come into the military while you were there as, as a young man? Oh, for me, it was and like I coming was, into basic training, right? Like there's some old oh, fucker that comes in there. I, I'm not in basic training, but the oldest guy I've seen come to our unit that was a newbie yeah. was 46. Same freaking year old I am. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, we didn't see him because I was in the aviation community. So they weren't that old because. Yeah. And I, he got in on some kind of a waiver because I thought he only be, had to be 40 or younger. I don't remember his. I remember the guy, but I, his last name was Smith. I remember that, but he was 46 years old. Wow. And they'll do waivers for certain skill sets. You'll see a lot of older doctors and dentists and stuff, guys like that with that skill mm -hmm. set. They'll come in. I imagine, too, like in a time of war or some type of special right. situation, they'll let, almost let anybody in. Well, I was a grunt, so I imagine anybody can catch a bullet. <laughs> so, <laughs> it didn't matter. Uh, so the Air Force-wise, <clears throat> I, I think I told you this, Blaine, but I have a friend who flies um, drones. 
Yeah. And they call them, I always laugh, they call them penguins because they can't fly. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're fucking drone operators. Uh-huh. I, I don't know if, how they're doing it now, but they still be making guys go through pilot training and then yeah. go to drones. And then after drones, they probably promise them some sweet deal. And then I, at the last minute, change it up for the needs of the Air Force. <laughs> where's pilot training at? Oh, there was, right now there's what, five oh. or six bases. Mm-hmm. There's one in... Columbus, Mississippi, uh, Vance Air Force Base in Enid, Oklahoma, Cultural Center of the Universe. There's <laughs> Oklahoma. <laughs> there's Del Rio, Texas, and then there's a special one for NATO that we send Air Force students to as well in Shepherd Air Force Base. I think that's the three that's left. When I went in, we had Williams Air Force Base and Reese Air Force Base as well. Right. And it, it changes all the time. But right now, there's about three of them, three or four Pretty of them. Pretty sure he had to go through flight training before he went Probably. to the drones. Yeah. Probably. It just seems like such a, such a bait and switch, man. <laughs> well, at some point, all the planes are going to be flown autonomously yeah maybe I, I i don't think we're going to be too excited about getting on a passenger plane without any kind of pilot on board yeah well no. as soon as the cars make the switch i'm sure planes will be next yeah maybe i mean <clears throat> at some I, point I there'll be something that switches and elon said 2030 half of them will be driving on their own on the street yeah we'll see how, it'll be interesting to see when they finally get an ai built <clears throat> fighter and to go out against a human fighter and to see there's already a movie there's a movie about the AI plane that goes with, uh, it's got uh, uh, Jamie Foxx. Mm-hmm. You haven't seen it before? You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. All right, so there's an AI plane that comes in, and they, they tell them the AI plane is going to come into their little elite unit of fighters. And there's a whole movie about how, oh, how it, it goes sideways. Tin Man. Yeah, his name is Tin Man. Yeah, that was, I saw that movie. movie but, yeah. Jessica Biel. And, Jessica Biel, yeah, yeah. That's the one. That's a good movie. Yeah. It's going to be sad. So basically, he the, the AI plane accesses all of the military's secret projects, finds a project that basically was to target all of their enemies in the world, and decides that it's going to start executing that tar- those targets. Oh, damn. Goes out on its own. How old is this? Well, maybe 10, 10 years, years yeah. old. It's sad that Terminator- <sighs> What's the name of that, Luke? Pre- Look it up. Jessica Biel, Jamie Foxx. I think it's called Tin Man or something like that. No, that's the that's the plane. That's, that's the, plane, the AI that, plane's that, name. Wasn't that the name of the movie too? Nah, his okay. name is Tin Man. Yeah. Well, they uh, they called him Jamie Fox calls him Tin Man because there's nothing inside. Yeah, nothing that, inside. It's yeah. just a metal hollow. It's gonna be. It's sad that Terminator is gonna predict our future. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know. Yeah, we're building Skynet right now, man. Yeah, it's <laughs> we are. unfortunately we are. Well, on to that. Uh, what else? Musician side? Oh, that just a hobby thing. I uh, I heard you got a custom trumpet made in Colorado. Yeah. What do you like? <laughs> the cost of a custom gun. Oh, I don't know. It's just like anything else that you can. Some people off the shelf stuff fits and works well. And other people it doesn't. And you either fight with the equipment and there if you can't adapt Stealth. to it. Yeah, that's it. Never even heard of that show. It's a good, good, good movie. Yeah. And there's a picture of the plane there. Yeah. 2005, wow. I have to bite my tongue a lot whenever I, or call it, suspend my disbelief whenever I see any movie involving any type of, well, especially military aviation, most militaries. You probably have to do the same thing when you see Army tactics being... You tell me that Top Gun's not real? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people people came out, though, on the new Top Gun, 
and said how realistic it was. The the filming that they did for that movie was much better than well, any they, other film that had been done. They they did a good job. They took those actors and they got them so used to flying in the back of an F-18 or whatever. You know, Tom Cruise has an L-39, which is a little jet trainer that's a pretty good airplane. They got so used to flying that they said, okay, you're going to have to show more concern and stress on your face and you're showing now they had to run cameras they sat in the back of these airplanes with these cameras and they had to set up the cameras and do the shots and pull the g's so yeah it's it actually pretty impressive mm. as far as the tactics though um and no nothing that i know is classified anymore but i still don't want to talk about it they're not going to show exactly the things that we do they kind of hinted at it but n- nobody rolls over the top of somebody three feet away and, no. and then drops into a rolling scissors. Yeah, that's for definitely for movie. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it looked terrible. If, if you show planes a mile apart, you can barely see the other one. But yeah, uh, it's a good story. You know, they don't flip over and flip each other off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool, though, when you see a movie like uh, there was a movie recently come out called Interstellar. It oh, was all about, one. you know, yeah. uh, going through a black hole and this and that. So then they'll have the... I think he's an astrophysicist, but there's a black guy that comes out. He's pretty public, and he, and he super super crazy smart guy knows everything about oh, space. Neil, Neil, Neil yeah. Degrassi, Degrassi, yeah. Degrassi. So they brought Degrassi, Neil yeah. in, and they're like, "Hey, you know, what did you think of the movie?" And it's cool to hear like the real, at least what we what we think we yeah. know. Which you know, is, and that movie was pretty accurate as far as how the black hole is supposed to look, how it's three dimensional. Really? Shit, yeah, he says fairly fairly accurate depiction of how how it will work. I always thought he couldn't he couldn't survive a black hole. <laughs> well, I don't know about that part. Nobody actually knows, right? Nobody's been in there. And well, been back. in theory, if, if a black hole really is a collapsed star that has so much gravity, light can't escape. I don't mm. think we'd hold up too well. Yeah, in it's it. basically going to shrink you down to nothing. Yeah, I'd know. just get in one of those subs that go down to the Titanic and oh yeah, shoot myself <laughs> right through. <laughs> the one made out of carbon fiber, <laughs> carbon fiber, <laughs> dental floss, and bubble gum. And, Quarter and, million and, bucks, get in there, and no shit mi- in a five gallon bucket. And no middle-aged white guys running it either. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, I don't know boy. if we could actually laugh about that yet as, as the time I passed. I don't know. There's not a lot. Here's the thing. If you sit back and think about it logically, is that the best use of your money and time, knowing that you're going down there in a experimental sub? Yeah, not mine. Just to see the Titanic. I just watched the movie Titanic. I was yeah. happy. Well, found out just just because you got money don't mean you're smart. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Well, let's get on to the topics that actually the listeners probably want to uh, want to hear Blaine talk about. Mm. And and the thing that he tells me all the time that he wants to talk about, and I'm going to hit him up on this is, I have a quarter minute gun <laughs> all day every day if I do my part. You know, I, I used to tell people, well, I don't believe you, <clears throat> but I don't even say that anymore. I just say, so what. Because <laughs> a quarter minute gun, because they're talking about 100 yard groups. And in this day and age, everybody's hunting at longer ranges. And so how the gun shoots at 100 yards just doesn't matter. Well, you are, Blaine. Oh, yeah, that's my light gun. You got a picture of Blaine's bench rest gun up at the match they went to last week. That's not the pretty one. Yeah, if you guys, if you guys aren't watching these podcasts on YouTube, you're going to get a lot more content, uh, a lot more like there's a rifle in the middle of the table. Oh, cool! He's, good he's stuff. showing, and, yeah. He's actually showing. So this be, this must be cider period because I'm going slow. I think Luke's got a picture of me running the heavy gun fast because we try to single feed him as fast as we can. No, this is cider period. I'm just trying to figure out what the wind's doing. It's always when the wind. Sh- Oh wait, no, that's my that's my record string. It's just 
I didn't know oh, slow motion. Okay. Is that? <laughs> I didn't think I was it, that slow. Is that a night force? Yeah. Believe it or not, probably, probably the best bench rest scope still. That's a 30 year old design. It's a night force BR 12 to 42. It'd be terrible for hunting. So don't even think about it. It's got a front focus objective. And so it's slow, but because it has a front focus objective, it's very clear. Are you making any changes in between shots? I mean, just, you, you get into the scope like you're doing something, but you're really not doing anything well, in between. Just slight changes. When what I, are you changing? The, the uh, I don't know if you, can see, you probably can't see it on the left hand back part of the. Is that rest, that long knob there, on the two front knobs. rest? Yeah, you okay. change the elevation of windage. So you are but, making slight changes each time. There you go. Your hand went down to it. When you get it right, you don't have to make Damn, any changes. Luke, Luke got a good video of you. Look at that. You yeah. feel like you're in it. What you needed here was a secondary camera recording these bullets hitting the target a thousand yards downrange. Notice this too. Cool. Notice the bolt coming out. Yeah. There's no safeties on these guns. If you walk to the firing line during a match with a bolt in your gun, you're going home. Mm. They don't even mess with that because you know it, it. It just doesn't work. And the fan is not to cool the barrel; it's to blow the mirage away. Those other guys don't got fans on. Yeah, some do, some don't. It just depends. Is there a minimum age of entry, like sixty years old or something? Or it, you know, it seems that way. <laughs> we've it's just you know, you, you get to you get to sixty, you've already done all the other stuff. So what's what's left that's hard that yeah. I haven't done? Uh huh. Do you? No, we got a thirteen year old shooting with us you? that routinely hands us our ass. So nice. Yeah. When I was when I was young, you know, probably in my teens, early twenties, I heard about bench rest a lot. And in my last 20 years, it's kind of fallen off the map. And I'm even more into the shooting and hunting sport. Do you think long-term it's dying? Or do you think it is dead? Or where do you think I, it's at in popularity from the start? I think it's mature and going to stay about where it is. It, it never was, oh, it may have been super popular after World War II. But it's just, and here's what happens. People come out and they don't understand. They think, oh, well, the bench shoots it and it's, it's easy. And then they come out and they finish last. And I mean, because it's because we're, we shoot from the most stable shooting position, our accuracy expectations are really high. Our 10 ring is, what, seven inches in diameter. And I think an F class is 12. And that's not disparaging F class. The way they shoot is hard. Every shot they do is a wind call. But since the way we do it, so everything's tightened up, our... Our uh, yeah seven our ten ring I think is around seven inches and our X ring is like around three, and so, and we compete for both group and score. This is thousand yard bench rest, you know, a thousand yards. And so guys come out and it's an insane amount of tuning a load. I mean, it, it's stupid. I can see differences in two tenths of a grain in a three hundred Psalm Improve, which is running around sixty two grains of powder with a two hundred grain bullet, and it's consistent. You can see it change on the target. And little tiny things make a big difference. Well, nobody wants to do that. They want to grab the gun and go shooting. And so you find a sport where it's not as critical to have that last tenth of an MOA. And when I'm talking to guys about hunting, I tell them, yeah, don't, if your gun is consistently shooting 0.6, you know, at 300 yards, don't try to get it to shoot 0.4. Go out and start shooting rocks and stuff in the woods and figure out what the wind is doing because you're not going to miss an animal because you have a 0.4 load or a 0.6 load, but you will miss if you make a bad wind call. 
There's been yeah. kind of a change in direction. We talked about it with the Hornady guys last week about about the fact that uh, well, rifle has always shot to a cone and not to a point, but it seems that people are starting to focus more on that during load development and the actual accuracy of a rifle instead of a three shot group. Knowing what you just said about two tenths of a grain changing the load, the fact that you guys can put ten rounds inside of four inches. What is your opinion about the fact that a rifle shoots to a cone? And it, these guys that are saying this don't believe that your rifle can put 10 rounds inside of four inches at a thousand yards consistently. Yeah, that's a problem that we have and probably why we get ignored a lot when they start doing their accuracy calculations and whatnot. But we are working inside, so far inside the lines, I guess. I don't disagree with Hornady that for a hunting gun, it's going to shoot a cone. Well, our bench wrist guns shoot a cone because they're talking about over varying conditions and, uh, you know, varying temperatures and, and wind and this and that. It's not, though. They're basically saying that if 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 you shot 30 shots through a barrel and that is a two-inch group, that it's impossible to, to, to dial it in to shoot anything small. Like, you have to expect any of these shots to be within that two-inch group at 100 yards. It's there. Everybody is basically saying that you have to know that cone to understand what the rifle will actually do. So if you shoot a hundred three shot groups and you place them all over the top of each other, what is that cone? And then you can't expect it to ever shoot three in a row in a, in a certain, you know, half inch or whatever. If the cone of the rifle is two inches, you cannot expect it to. Yeah, I guess I'm not totally convinced on that. I mean, I understand the concept of it. The problem we have when we shoot that much is, you know, the barrel changes every time we pull the trigger and conditions change. So we have to account for that. I don't know. You know, I've been doing this a long time, and I've not ever had any problem hitting animals, and I know you guys haven't either. When you get it dialed in with a three-shot group, but the key is we check it on various days and make sure it repeats, make sure that our cold bore shots are hitting. And, of course, then again, when you get to an animal, you know, it's a big target. Maybe your cone on so, your bench rest gun is just much smaller it, than it the could average be that because Maybe you, you know, have a one-inch cone. Yeah, maybe it's a lot smaller. Because like I said, I've, I've seen it, but I, I always attribute the, the changes to changes in conditions. Uh, when the POI shifts, I thought they were just talking about POI shift, but they're saying that a gun at a hundred yards, thirty shots, yeah, basically. But I, I once never, you shoot the thirty, if it's a two-inch cone, but they're not shooting these on sporters; <clears throat> they're shooting them on big old fucking barrels. Exactly. The government and and Hornady, they're shooting them on bench rests, heavy. Then they're they're not even they don't even have the air that you guys have. These fuckers are bolted down. So it's if they're shooting it, you can't tell me you're not shooting it. You may just not be seeing it because you guys aren't extending your groups and you're not shooting 30 shot groups. No, we're shooting 10 shot groups. Right. And then, so what is, so let's, what is the average 10 shot group you're shooting? Like, let's not just say your average, just say an average of bench rest shooters. Um, oh boy, it's hard to say. Uh, they'll vary 10 shot groups between, commonly between four. Okay. Good shooters that are well-tuned probably between four and nine inches. Um, Winning groups typically are in the four or five inch range, sometimes six if the conditions are bad. So it's pretty consistent too. So what I wonder is if, you know, they're, let's say Hornday's shooting, because they kind of talked about this, they're shooting 
sounds like almost factory ammo into that. Yeah. To where you're tweaking each time. So your group still might be shooting to a cone. You're just tweaking it to a smaller cone. That's why he's the best person at this point to kind of hash this out because he's at the furthest end of the spectrum. Like Hornady to me is at the beginning of the spectrum with factory Mm -hmm. ammo, whereas he is spending two entire days loading a hundred rounds, let's say perfectly. And then seeing the results. So he said it was four to nine inches, nine inches at a thousand yards would mean that his cone is less than one inch. Yeah. It, nine shoot. inches is about a minute. I mean, it's well, it's 0.9. Yeah. It's 0.9. So it's less than, so his gun is less than an inch cone mm-hmm. at a hundred yards with even a, let's say a 30 shot. Because if you're shooting four to nine, that would be, let's say three, 10 shot groups. I had to so try your that. 30 shot cone is under one inch. I had to try that with a worn out barrel sometime. You should. Just to see what it does. I, I've never shot these guns at a hundred yards. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't. Because the more that I try it, the more I'm seeing Hornet Forum, they're correct. I don't have a, I don't definitely don't have a 0.5 gun if I'm going off that. I have like a 1.1 inch gun if I'm doing it that way. Yeah. You remember the old NRA magazines when they would probably still do it? When they publish an accuracy test, they take the average of, what is it, 10 five shot groups when they report how a load is shooting. Mm. And uh, I, I, I get, when you say 30 shot group though, that's not, a thirty-shot group. That's it 10 can be six, six five-shot groups. Okay. It could be ten three-shot groups. It doesn't matter. Once you lay all these shots over the top of each other, you mm-hmm. have figured out what the cone, the yeah. expected cone of fire from your barrel is. And like you bring up a good point too, that every time you pull the trigger, the gun changes. Maybe this thirty-shot cone is more tracking how your throat is degrading. It could be. There's there's lots of things. They also say that changing powder charge a half grain either way or adjusting seating depth five tenths or five thousandths doesn't do anything to the load. Yeah, and, and I've got tons of pictures of test ladders where exactly. I'm, I'm showing that it doesn't. So that's that's the thing that cracks me up is <clears throat> I know you're damn serious about this. You would think that Hornaday's damn serious about what they're doing. Where where does that truth lie? Is it just in the middle? Well, I remember well, Hornady is fighting with a fucking arm tied right. behind their back. They can only yeah. use Hornady shit. But the other, the other part of forum saying those people aren't, and they're they're reporting. And then you take it like Aaron Davidson. He's saying the same. They went to seven shot groups because he says that three seven shot, shot under what three quarter minute yeah. back to back. He said because three shot groups aren't you're not uh, they're not statistically viable, and you might get the best of that cone in those three shots, and it might be. A 1.5 minute seven First, shot group gun. Then again, keep going. They're shooting at 100 yards, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, then it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm confident when we give a gun that shot a two and three quarter inch group at 650 yards mm-hmm. after having shot around a half inch at 100, that's going to hold in the field. You know, we had a good example of, of that with a rifle that, oh, it had a problem with the scope mount and it, uh-huh. it came back. We went out and uh, out to Nick's and because we had to get it turned quick. And put the new scope mount on it, shot it, got it zeroed at 100, went out at 650. And it, yeah, it, it hit a little bit to the right because Nick didn't put any spin drift in. If he would have put the spin drift in, mm-hmm. it would have center punched the middle of that 650-yard bull. So I think that's what, what's happening is if you're talking about shooting at 100 yards, you need lots of groups. When I did my bench rest tuning at 200, I would shoot multiple five-shot groups. And then I just eventually quit doing that because I figured out how to tune at a thousand yards, and the distance equalizes a lot. 
Okay. Well, the uh, whole positive compensation. Yeah, I hate to use that word because there's two components to that. You know, there's the positive compensation that's going to shoot a tighter MOA at longer range and closer range. Well, I think Brian Letts did a pretty good job of dispelling that by having the shoot through targets. And somebody could do it now with electronic targets. You could set them up all the way to a thousand yards. Be careful so you don't hit one of them. But the acoustic targets you're talking about. Acoustic, yeah. Yeah. And uh, you you could see the, the dispersion. But, um, and what he found was is that when he got that really super tight MOA at 300, it also shot super tight at 100. The, the positive compensation that we think works is you go out and we'll shoot these round robin uh, ladder test ladders, ladders, I guess, at 1,000 yards. Same POI. We color the bullet tips. We shoot them all at the same time so that we are not – they're all in the same condition, basically. We're not getting a good and a bad condition. And you will, even over shooting – uh, four three-shot groups at a thousand yards, one after the other, there will be a good and bad condition. And so round robin tends to mitigate that. Then we can see the colors of the bullet on the paper. We connect the dots. We like to find a place where the groups overlap. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of is positive compensation. And I've seen it. You know, I don't always use a chronograph when tuning at a thousand yards because you know, we don't get trophies for ES or SD. But it's kind of interesting to see sometimes what it's doing. And I've seen repeatedly a higher powder charge shoot a slightly lower velocity. And now we're talking within two three-shot groups within, let's say, four inches at 1,000 yards. So it's fairly tight. And we're trying to find what we call a node where it's forgiving, where it'll it'll be consistent whether it gets hotter or colder. And if it speeds up and slows down, it holds that. But but I've seen that. And another good example is... Uh, Several Before I was shooting with this club, they went out and they did a 2,000-yard bench rest match. And most of the guys took their 1,000-yard loads out. And these were, these were guns that were shooting, you know, two to three inches, five-shot groups at 1,000 yards, you know, in good conditions. Most of those guys shot 20, 24 inches, something like that, at 2,000 yards. Except one guy, he went out and actually tuned his load. I think he found a place that went to about 2,200 yards. Well, he shot like 12s and 15s. So there is something about getting the bullets to all converge at a distance. Basically, positive compensation is load development at the distance that you're yeah, competing if, at, if we define, a known distance. If we define it that way, I agree. But a lot mm. of guys think they shoot tighter MOA at a longer distance. And boy, mm. I've never seen that. It's always dispersion. Mm. It always gets wider. Is MOA the same thing as MOA? It <laughs> could be. <laughs> and actually, what? A MOA is not an inch at 100 yards. What is it? 1.046 or Six, seven, something like something, that? Something, something. Yeah. Interesting. Do you think that if, you know, those, I, I do agree on validating that distance because I think that takes, you know, all the, uh, I mean, you are putting in some environmental errors could be possibly in there, but you are seeing what that group actually does at the distance you're going to shoot. But if you're shooting three-shot groups, do you think you could also be just shooting that's the best of the three-shot groups? If you kept shooting, you would see that cone of dispersion? Oh, I think POIs would shift. And the problem is at a at 600 or 1,000 yards or whatever, environment is going to move the bullets around. So it's kind of hard to separate the environmental shift from what the gun naturally is going to vary. And I tell guys all the time, guns naturally will vary their group size. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I've shot, I see a lot of four to nine inch groups. The heavy gun I'm shooting right now is shooting really well. And it sucked me into a load I shouldn't have taken at this last match because I put three shots into nine sixteenths of an inch at a thousand yard shot round robin. Well, how could you not pick that? My error was I should have <clears throat> shot it again. 
it was 62.2 grains. <laughs> I typically shoot 62.0. And I mean, the match before, the average of my four 10-shot uh, groups was 4.7 inches. So, I mean, that gun was just screaming. And so I go out there and I pick the 62.2 and I shot a pair of nines and I was pissed. It was mid-pack and it was a terribly windy day. I took two-tenths of a grain out the next day and I shot a 4.9-100 right out of the gate. And then in, in the terrible conditions again, I shot like a 6.8, which is what it should have shot. So... Um, that's kind of the normal dispersion that we see. And I had a, a guy, he's, he's just an amazing bench rest shooter. And uh, a couple of these guys have told me that, you know, and they said, look, you got to let yourself shoot a 10 inch group every now and then, and just mm -hmm. not get all, all my load screwed up. My gun is bad. I got to change the barrel because that just happens. So if the guys that are the best of the best are saying that there mm -hmm. is variation in any gun and a hunting gun's going to have more. And, you know, and a problem we have when we do the 100 yard low dev and then go out and shoot gongs at long range, well, if we're centering the gongs, we're okay. But, you know, if you're shooting a 36 inch gong at 1,100 yards and you hit it, well, so? Right. <laughs> I mean, where did it hit? It's almost better to shoot a dirt bank and see where it hits. So that's the, that's the disadvantage of doing And we've done it that way. I mean, we started low development and we had a lot of success doing that. And, Sometimes 100-yard groups work out, but for every one that we had that work out, there's one that with a low ES and SD at 100 yards, and you shoot it at five or 600, it's a foot or 18 inches. We're not sure why. Since you guys have went to 650 yards, you guys haven't had any trouble with people saying their loads aren't shooting. No. No. Definitely not. Yeah, just so it. people don't know, every gun that is load dev is getting verified at 650 yards. Yeah. Well, when the snow gets heavy, he might only well, go 500. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I, yeah, for the most part, 650 yards, and that's, I've seen some of those groups. They're pretty cool. Even 500 is okay. It's yeah. just the fact that, I mean, that's mm -hmm. if you're going from, a let's call it 100% to 500%, you know, that's a large, that's a yeah. big swing to check what the load is still doing. I'd say at 300 yards, it quits telling us the 100-yard lies. Mm-hmm. And maybe between Horner D and us, we're getting at it just different ways. Their answer is shoot lots of groups at 100 yards. And if you can only Our shoot 100 is yards. validating it. Yeah, validate it at longer range and see mm -hmm. what it does. I mean, we yeah. can all miss animals, but, but, you know, and you guys have shot farther than I have. I think 435 is the longest that I shot. But for the longer shots that you guys have taken, I mean, you've not had problems making hits. He shot elk at 907 with a 6.5 PRC. Yeah, of course he did. Yeah. Hey, one through the uh, one through the heart. One I through only the lungs. bring that one up because I was there. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's the thing that's crazy. And this is before I forget. I want to ask you this question because I got a two second memory. What's the average winning thousand yard bench rest, and what's the just average you shot over the years? If oh boy, that's tough to call. But I mean, is it sub sub half? Minute? Let me give you an idea of what's considered a screamer. Screamer. Oh, it's, it's under four inch. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, my best. The, well, no. Uh, not well, your best, just the average well, winning okay, group. Okay, here's, here's what's the standard that they set. This is what they consider a screamer group, which is a really good group. It's not the world records, but it's considered it's considered excellent. For a 10-shot group, it's under 5 inches at 1,000, and for a 5-shot group, it's under 2.5 for IBS right now. The world record is like a 2.6-inch 10-shot group and a Ooh, one a one that's point. impressive. Ooh. Oh God! It's just a little, that's a quarter inch gun at a grand. Yeah. yeah, and then what's the average you shot over the years? Average in good conditions or just guesstimate? I would just, just say your total out. average oh, I, going I, to the competitions. I, I, I would and see I'm getting better all the time, but I'd say mm -hmm. if you're average me over the, the eight or nine years that I've shot, probably probably six inches, six oh, or pretty, seven. It's pretty damn probably. Good. It's basically just, half. Pretty yeah. damn good. Oh. 
And that's with mostly, is that all with 300 WSM or no? Well, the heavy gun, yeah, mainly. I've also shot six BRA as a light gun, and in good conditions, you can't beat it at 1,000 yards. Gotcha. It just, I don't know what's magic about a 6mm. What's the bullet of choice on a 6mm? Some Somebody's custom-made 103 to 105 grain bullet, whether it's Roy Hunter or Vapor Trail or Bart's. Okay. Um, some guys still shoot the 105 Burger hybrid target, and I don't want to throw that one under the bus because Walt Burger's the guy that figured this out. When he handed those bullets to Richard Schatz to try, the bench rest world changed about mm. 20 years ago, I think. Mm-hmm. And he, Richard shows up with his little six dasher and beats all these big guns because prior to then, the community was shooting 30s and 338s, and the little gun comes in and just beats them all. Mm. And so... That's kind of where we are. And you take a look at PRS. What they start out with? 300s and 7s and 6.5s. Mm. And now what do they shoot? They shoot 20-pound 6-dashers. Yeah, I think 6 is pretty much the good. Well, yeah. the guys that shoot a lot say that it's leading back towards 25 at the moment. Because it might be. Because 135 long-range hybrid. Yeah, mm-hmm. if we can make that work. 6 We've, mil or 25, it's one of those two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Smaller's better. That's that's a average. Hmm. That's a smaller than I expected, 0.6. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing because I haven't. You know, I'm more proud of the one I did two matches ago that was a four seven. Yeah, but I think like if you're, <laughs> to me, it's what's what's the average. You know, what the best is the best. It's just your day, but the average tells you your yeah, act, actual accuracy over time, and that's impressive. And it depends on the range too. The guys down in Tucson or Sacramento where it's windy all the time, I mean, they'll win with six or seven inch light gun groups. Uh, Deep Creek, when we get good conditions, they're insanely good. And so that's why that we shoot really, really tight there. And, and I think generally our conditions are better. Of course, when they're bad, it's a headwind. And, and, and you would think you know, it's a headwind or tailwind. And it doesn't matter if it's a headwind or tailwind. You would think that, okay, in a tailwind, my bullet ought to impact higher. Um, and in a headwind, it ought to impact lower. So if I got a headwind and the wind drops, I should hold up. Well, it turns out that just wind blowing across the terrain provides lift and Pretty much what I see there so far is when the wind dies, your bullets drop because it's it's not going over those little bumps and those berms of all the – because you're shooting across all these other target ranges that run perpendicular to it. And so you know every time you've got those little humps like this, I think the wind comes up. Gotcha. Mm. Wasn't the world record set at Deep Creek? Yeah, for the yeah. for IBS. The other world record for NBRSA was set in Arizona. And, uh, I mean, it was amazing. It was a 300 WSM. And it was about the same size. And it just real experienced guy. He was like 83. He just saw the condition set up and let him fly. <laughs> hey, so, recently, recently, we had a little discussion about, uh, we won't name names, but there was a post by an individual that did a podcast with a guy who said that he shoots his load. He does load development until, do you remember this? Oh, the guy that said there's been a good load and a great load. That yes. guy. Oh, yes. yeah. The, when he was consistently shooting inch, inch and a quarter, ten shot groups at six hundred yards. Yes. Yeah. I, you know. Tell I, us what you I, think about that because you you came and showed me the world record to yeah. just show that the guy's full of shit. Yeah. Um, it's bullshit. That's, that's all I can say. Is, Blaine uh, comes over. He's like, listen to this guy. And then he shows me on his screen the actual world record, which was... 1.4. So 1.4 is the world record 10-shot group. From a bench rest gun. And this guy says that to get a good load... And he, and I don't want to say names because he's a he's a, a good shooter. He wins champion. He You know, I looked up, I looked up his name just to see yeah. what he could do. And he was saying that he tunes his load until it shoots... 
inch and an inch to inch and a quarter at at six hundred yards. And repeats. I mean, I was and repeats. Say multiple times or one yes, time. Yeah, and one, repeats. One time I would buy it because we can all get. If, if we could shoot matches during our tuning sessions, because you go out at the crack of dawn where the wind's perfect. Yeah. But to repeatedly do it. Yeah, it just it, well didn't it, ring truth. Put it, it that way. Bothered me a bit because you have two guys on that podcast that are well known names in the industry that are basically spewing bullshit straight on their <laughs> podcast. To guys, they're it's almost like looking at the girl with fake tits and a perfect body, whatever, and then and then making all the women think that's what they got to look yeah. like, right? Like they're on the podcast just spewing bullshit instead of facts. Yeah, not cool. Uh, you know, because you, you never want to say it can never happen. I mean, you know, the chances of getting violently murdered by a bunny. <laughs> but, but never zero. But never zero. <laughs> hey, hey, we just had like a deep dive into Blaine's brain, brain right there, dude. Low, but never zero. <laughs> I just see Blaine walking by a bunny rabbit going, Fucking murder buddy. That dude can kill oh, me shit. still. Hey, well, you, you've hey, seen murder buddy is a new murder shirt. Bunnies. You, murder buddy. You, you've seen the Monty Python search for the Holy Grail, oh, haven't yeah. you? Well, oh, that's yeah. where it comes from, man. Yep, but never zero. <laughs> never murder zero. Buddies. Well, that's going to be perfect. You got any more uh, bench rest questions? No, not I at all. I just, uh, yeah, I just thought it was a great opportunity to go from talking with Hornady about very basic ammo and basic rifles to the furthest end of the accuracy spectrum because these guys, I know the effort that they put into to loading their ammo. Mm-hmm. And if you were to talk about perfectly loaded ammo, this would be the most perfectly loaded ammo that a human is capable of with all the given tooling that's that's available. Yeah. yeah. So it's literally the opposite end. Yeah. And, and I, t- I t- tell guys, don't go down that path. For a hunting gun. I get guys all the time that call and they start apologizing for how the level they're trying to tune their hunting gun to. And I always say, would you like to be in a shooting discipline where you don't have to apologize for that? Mm. And uh, I don't know if I've got anybody in yet. But I, goes to the fact hunters, and this isn't my saying, I just hear it, it always cracks me up, is we are not group shooters. We're thing hitters. Yeah. And I think that rings true that bench rest are group shooters. Hunters are not. And the funny thing is most of the bench rest shooters are also hunters. So yep. we use some of that methodology. I mean, guys will take their hunting guns out there on the day before the match after they got their bench rest gun, and they'll run a thousand-yard ladder with it just to see where they are. And uh, Right. Yeah, I mean, one guy, I don't want to mention his name, but he's superstar shooter. And uh, – a six Creedmoor and a seven pound gun off a bipod <laughs> shot. Oh, something like a four inch three shot group at a thousand yards with it. I mean, that's a seven pound gun. So mm-hmm. yeah, that one's going to make hits <laughs> on pivot in here on Rockside, I always see the debate of, you know, buying a factory gun or having a gunsmith gun builder, build your rifle. <clears throat> So I've had seven, that six UM being the seventh rifle that UM has built for me. Mostly you built for me. Taylor's came in lately. <clears throat> what do you get? And I'm not talking about get into your magic or your your voodoo of building a gun. But what do you do to sell a person from going to a, maybe from a Christensen that's, you know, three grand or a Seekins or into that four to $6,000 range? Why should they do that to get a gun from, from unknown munitions? Well, there's there's three things I like to point out that make a gun accurate. First one is a decent quality barrel with a straight throat. So when the bullet leaves the case, it engages the rifling straight. And th- this is not any big secret. Right. Everybody knows this that is is into this. 
And you do that by how you set it up on the lathe. And I won't go into all the details of that, but you set it up right in the lathe. You get the throat, the throat cut straight. You've given it its best chance of shooting well. That's number one. Number go, two. Explain a little more like, uh, like so as the barrel is spinning in the lathe, you know, you have your outer concentric circle and you have your inner bore. Yeah, we... Uh, we use a direct reading indicator, an expensive Swiss indicator, that reads directly off the rifling. And it's kind of a pain to do, but we're watching that needle bounce up and down. And we want to make sure that that area just in front of the throat is exactly concentric to the lathe. So that means that every time that needle goes up and down, it comes back to the same place. And uh, that, means it's, that means it's dialed in and it's going to be cut straight. So we do that. The next thing is a stress-free bedding job, and we have a, a checker to check that. And this is this is n- no secret knowledge either. You, you put the checker on it. It's a dial indicator that the base goes on the barrel and the stem goes on the stock, and you stand the rifle straight up. You don't want the barrel to fall on its own. You tighten and loosen the guard screws. You should have less than two thousandths movement, or at least have it go back to the same place. And then the third thing... Uh, so you got a straight barrel. Oh, you need a reasonably true action. And I say reasonably true action because we fit barrels to unaccurized, you know, untrued actions before and had them shoot well. Mm. And uh, n- now that's for a hunting gun. We get into to competition guns. There's other things that we do that. I'm just talking about hunting. Right? Yeah, but, but that those three things. And we're going to do that on a $3,000 Tika build or a, if somebody comes in and it's just a chamber job or our full-blown, you buy the whole meal deal with a, with a scope and a load development package and everything. We put the same care into chambering the barrel and making sure it's straight. And I think that's why we're getting such good results. Also, you know, make sure. Number, not- number four would be support. Going to what we could do for. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and also with, with custom guns, there's a... Um, Let's get the gun to fit you. Mm-hmm. There's one very good customer that uh, was going back and forth on a stock, and, and he came in the shop, and I handed him a bunch of stocks, and I just watched him. And he needed a raised cheek piece. When he tried to put his head on a regular stock, I mean, he was moving his cheek around and everything, trying to find it. With a cheek piece, he was right there down the center of the scope. There are some guys. Yeah, I know. Some it just reminded do. me of what Aaron Davidson said on the Gunworks <laughs> podcast about if you need a fucking adjustable cheek piece, you don't know how to shoot. shoot. He yeah. must not have those high model type cheekbones, I guess. Yeah, I guess yeah, so. Those European cheekbones. For me, it's different. I need a low comb because I feel like I'm smashing my face down on a raised cheek piece. I always lower them. And it's just how you're built. And uh, we can help fit the gun. And, and gun fit is more important than people think. You know, and in fact, I'm surprised that you're able to shoot standard length of poles because mm. you're what, like 6'2"? Yep. Yeah. So I would think you'd, long, yeah. Yeah, I think you'd probably want more like a 14-inch. I, I got the same problem. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> Me being of average height, you know, 5'10", everything fits that, mm-hmm. they, that they build. And so yeah. that's something else that is important. And with a custom gun, we can do all of that. And I think right. I think one of the biggest things is just support. In other words, if you buy that Christensen Ridgeline and it doesn't shoot, there's a reason why we don't sell Christensen rifles anymore yeah. because of the support. Uh, Seekins has a phenomenal no questions asked warranty policy, and we really haven't had a Seekins that didn't shoot well enough for the for the customer. Uh, most of the time with load development, they can get down, but Seekins just has that Costco style unknown munition mm-hmm. style of return policy where there's no if you buy Tika rings from us and it's the wrong size and you already put them on your rifle we're still going to take them back yeah. and give you the right size whereas if you have to go out of your way and put excessive effort into getting a product you purchase either warranted or just get the thing that you purchased the way they promised it would be it just it sucks 
And from our perspective, so we were dealing Christians and rifles having issues here and there. And not every rifle has an issue. But when we tried to get them fixed, the support wasn't there. So what you get is you get a place you can either walk into or call or whatever it might be. And it's built in one place. So whether it's our Tika custom builds or whatever action it might be on, it's still the same amount of care and support that you would get, you know, either way. But support is important. And what yeah. I've what I've seen from lots and lots of rifles that I've owned is, and I'm not bagging on production rifles. There's some great shooting. There's some great companies out there that build good rifles. But if you do get a lemon from that company, a lot of times when I send them back, I almost swear that they just open the box. They maybe just tighten up the action screw and they're shipping that son of a bitch back. It to shot me. a third of an inch with factory ammo. Really? Mm-hmm. After we put 200 rounds through the fucking barrel, yep. couldn't get it to shoot better than three quarters of an inch. And you just happen to put some Barnes TTSXs through it, and all of a sudden it's shooting a third of an inch. Yep. I don't think so. It, or just never shoots under two inches, and they're saying, well, it's not the gun. We checked it. Mm. I've had a gun go back to a company four times and still come back with bad. What I've seen with you guys, I'm not trying to be your guys' homer. I just have had lots of custom guns. I've had lots of production guns. When it comes back here, when you get it again, it's going to fucking shoot. Mm. And the guns that I have, number seven, uh, this one's not fully vetted yet, but the, the six guns I have, the rifle would shoot well past a thousand yards. I don't know if I could every shot, but if I knew I'm taking it hunting, I know that that gun would kill past a thousand yards if I did my part. Mm. And that's, imp- that's impressive. I've had people that are high level shooters, high level competition shooters shooting with them, with your rifles say, well, fuck our rifles won't do that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you guys are doing the right shit. Thank you, Ryan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I appreciate, too, that you pretty much let me run that part of the rifle builds the way that I want. And Mr. GM, <laughs> those, as, those as, guys as long get, as it's fucking working, Blade, you and, have and, control. And it, <laughs> it's funny. He started out, you know, cut a chamber. Did you bore scope it? Yeah. So bore scope it. And then so I've, and, and you know, for the bedding job, did you check it? And so I built a habit pattern in those guys that they do something and they double check it. That's the pilot in me. You do something and you go in the right. checklist to make sure you did it right. And uh, yeah, 90, almost all the time, you bore scope and it looks great, but you need to know that when you send it out. (laughs) And I appreciate the fact that I know now that I have two nerdy sons of bitches that are (laughs) anal looking at that gun, building that gun, machining that gun. That is another good thing, too. There are a lot of great one-man show rifle builders, but here everybody has a job that they're very good at. In other words, you know, whether it be selecting components, ordering components, managing the workflow, actually getting the rifle into the build process in time, that whole, that's just one part of the process. Then there's the gunsmith, there's the machinist, you know, cutting the chamber and whatnot. There's the guy that does the bedding. There's the guy that does the Cerakote. There's the guy that does the load development. And each one of these guys is very specialized in exactly what they do. And again, that's not saying anything bad about one man shows. There are great rifle builders out there. But here the rifle gets touched, fondled, and checked so many times that by the time it does leave the door, it's almost you know 99% right. And you've just explained why those one-man gunsmiths are always so grumpy. They are grumpy, <laughs> <Yeah>. yep. <laughs> There's some great ones out there. There really is. they yeah. got to do everything, and they want it now, and it's just tough for one guy to do it all. We actually just talked about this, the fact that when, when a customer, when a hunter – finally decides they want to spend 6000 bucks plus on a rifle. Which we build Tika builds too that are 3000 Don't think it's always 6000 bucks. But a guy finally decides to spend this money. Well, it's a big deal for that individual hunter. And we make it a point 
that it is a big deal. Sometimes we lose that even in podcasts or talking about hunting because it's what we do all the time. But in the end, you know, it's a really big deal for that one guy. We take Polaroids, we write your name on it. It goes up in the store. Um, but it's a big deal. And we, uh, like I said, we back the product and three to $6,000 is a lot of freaking money. It's a lot of fucking money. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Blaine. So there, here's your chance. You know, I know Blaine, he vents to me, he vents to Jake. (laughs) What, what are the questions? Not necessarily that you're tired of hearing, but you could answer right here. We could point them to this podcast. Pet peeves. The, the pet peeves you get every week from customers. Um, well, we already talked about the 100-yard groups being meaningless because uh, yeah, maybe a 30-round 100-yard group is okay, but a three-shot 100-yard group, no. We need to see how it shoots at distance. The other one that guys sometimes ask is they want a tight chamber. And I know why they say that, because they got some factory gun that was so wallowed out that they shoot the brass and it looks pregnant. When and there, there is out. a lot of bad fucking information, too, on the Internet talking yeah. about, oh, you need a tight chamber. Yeah, and you do not want a tight chamber. Absolutely. It's bad. I mean, it's funny. The last two weeks, I have fussed with seven or eight guns that have had too tight of chambers or had, had the symptoms of too tight of chamber for various reasons. And they, they've been different. Whenever I get asked about a tight chamber, I say, please explain to me what you mean by tight chamber. Yes. Because they literally have no fucking idea about the four thousands min max and just tight chamber means on the smaller side of that, the shorter headspace. I get it for the whole idea of less brass movement and extending brass life, but most guys never shoot a barrel out. Most guys never reload brass 20 times. And just they're getting this information online that says, oh, if you get a custom rifle, make sure you ask for a tight chamber. And just let let the guys that know what the fuck they're doing do what they do. Yeah, and you want a, a min spec Sammy chamber. And for a hunting gun, we like around two thousands headspace. Call it, you know, one and a half to two and a half. That's where we try to keep it. It's zero to four is the accepted amount. I don't even set up my bench rest guns with zero headspace anymore. And I'll tell you why, because I did one. Hmm. I got, and I was just lazy in the lathe. I got it and uh, got it torqued in and it was just right at zero. I go, okay, that's fine. Well, guess what? Every piece of new brass was resistance closing the bolt. And then I shot them all. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, no big deal. And then you go to size them and you're sizing die and it won't size them down enough because the yeah. chamber's too tight. Yeah. So you, you got to go and shorten the sizing die or the shell holder. Not only that, but functionally in a hunting gun, if you have a tight headspace that. chamber in your hunting gun and the smallest fucking speck of dust gets on your case head, your fucking bolt's not going to close in the field. Like, yeah. why would you want shit to be tight? Just yeah. even bumping shoulder. I used to back him 1000s and I had a fucking blade of grass. Fuck me. I could not get a bullet loaded bullet in that chamber. Yeah. And uh, that's never when you're just out walking around. There's probably no. some giant elk out there that you want to shoot. No, I was trying to shoot it. It wasn't a big deer, but I was trying to shoot it and I physically couldn't get a bullet. And it was a little blade of grass. Yeah. Yeah. No. So we, we want to have proper clearances and precision. And we've even loosened things up in bench rest. It used to be that, uh, 2000s neck clearance and then you know barely bump the shoulders well now you know i personally like three the four thousands neck clearance with this with turned brass and i like to bump the shoulders two to three and and, and it, it shoots and just neck, the same neck clearance is the distance between the sides of the chamber around the neck area yeah and the brass itself yeah and uh you get too you can get too far but generally a little bit bigger dimensions are much better than a little bit tighter dimensions mm. 
And I know, yeah, I know guys worry about brass and whatnot, but I mean, a couple thousands won't make a difference. And I think part of it too, if you get a belted mag, yeah. belted mag grows what, 15, 20 thousandths on its first firing because it headspaces off the belt. Mm. Those are the same guys bumping their shoulders back six, eight thousandths. Yeah. <laughs> Reload, worried about teaching. We should bring that up too. We're actually going to do a little video about that Peterson long oh, yeah. brass in both the 300 wind mag and the 7 run mag, which are the two most common belted magnums. So Peterson makes 300 wind mag long. It physically says that on the, the head stamp. They also make seven rem mag long, which reduces the amount of shoulder movement on that initial firing. All belted mags, once they're fired the first time, it no longer matters. Right. But if you buy that Peterson long brass, the shoulder does not move 20 thou. It moves more like five thou, which can extend brass life after that point. So don't be scared of that long brass. That's actually the better brass uh, to purchase is there like a set standard of how far that's bumped back on virgin brass is it all mm, over the map i don't even know i've seen it all over the it's map because the headspace spec is out the belt so take well i'm sure in the drawing there's some well, yeah on the on the drawing there's there's headspace on on the belt you're talking about belted cases i'm talking yeah belted cases but we can go further what about just a standard say like six five prc or 30.6 yes. is there a standard shoulder bump like is it six thousand eight thousand to slamming forward that first shot you know, I'd probably, I don't know. I think six to eight is probably right. I don't know the answer to that. I just know that a field gauge is 6,000 headspace. And gotcha. so a, uh, a, uh, for a, for a field hunting gun, what type of shoulder bump would you instruct somebody to do? Oh, I'd tell them to do two to three. Two to mm -hmm. three. Yeah. And if you, if you really want to incorporate a bench rest technique, measure every case after you bump the shoulder. Mm. <laughs> It'd drive you nuts because you'll find you got deflection in your press and the brass cases don't spring back the same. But if you get two to three, it won't matter. Mm. You know, if you have a little bit more, you can have that variation. Mm -hmm. On that note, how far would you recommend your seating depth being off if you're measuring every one? To every the ogive, bullet. yeah, to the ogive on every bullet, it should be within a thousands. Yeah, plus and, or minus and that's probably thousand. the limit that you can measure with a. I mean, I know our Mitotoyos go down to half a thousands. They're not that accurate, mm -mm. but if you get consistency, that's something else. When it comes to measuring tools, you just got to pay your dues and do it enough till you get a feel for it. And it's funny in this really precision world of machining, how much is based on feel. And to and to the ogive is the most important statement there when you're measuring. The consistency of ammunition. You cannot me measure to the tip. No. Or the mepla, as they call it. You cannot measure to the tip. Now, like A tips, A tips you can. Aluminum tipped Hornady bullets are so accurate from bullet to bullet that you can measure from base to tip. What Very I generally consistent. tell guys is that when you're talking about where you're seating, say I'm 20 thousandths off the lands and the cartridge overall length is this, because even like we've seen in the shop, even tools. The same exact tools made by the same company will measure differently, and each person measures different. So you give a cartridge overall length and a jump, then the person goes in with their tools and measures it their way and gets the jump, and they wind up at the same place. Yeah. I've even seen the steel versus aluminum comparators oh, be huge. off a lot. Yeah. They're different thicknesses, but yeah. even the same, even steel versus steel. We actually two, we have two sets of comparators in the shot, one in load dev and one in ammunition, and we tuned them to match each other. Nice. Mm. This is the level of analness you need, boys and girls. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Pet peeves, anything else? I have, I have one. If you're set, you go ahead. If you got more. Uh, no, you go ahead and let me think. One of mine is because I tend to be on the talking to guys about rifles and selling rifle side is I, I can't. 
it really sucks from a from a business gun builder perspective when the guy wants to go buy his barrel and buy his action and buy his stock and buy his bottom metal and mag and brake and rail and then you got parts coming in from 10 fucking places all at different times and they don't I, like I, I stop and try to explain to them like you basically took there's not a lot of margin in building the rifle the machining part there's there's no margin in that part really mm-hmm. there is but you know it's not the gun builder the business makes money off of various parts that they order they get a margin on every part and you're out there paying retail when I could have got 20% off of that especially if I was the one that was going to build your rifle and more often than not you buy the wrong fucking part the inlet's wrong in the stock. The barrel contour is not right. The bottom metal is an M5 and you got a stock inleted for a BDL. Whatever it might be, this just goes back to let the experts, let the pros do what they do. Yeah, I agree with that. because it. And if you send us a barrel that you got from Joe Blow and we chamber it, it's never going to be the same guarantee as if it's a barrel that I bought from my supplier. You know, there's a different, we don't know what you did with your barrel. It could have yeah. been living with you in the bathroom. We don't know. Generally, the reason the gunsmith, gun builder, they've had success with those items. Mm. So they want to use those items. They feel confident because if the barrel doesn't fucking shoot, it's my problem, not yours. And that's the main reason you want to come to a one-stop shop gun builder because it doesn't matter if it's an ace barrel, a proof barrel, a benchmark barrel, a Bartline barrel. If it doesn't shoot, it's our problem, not your problem. Yeah. Anyways, that was my rant. Oh, I agree with that. It's... uh... What's your thoughts on carbon barrels? Oh, shit. You, you know, I've, I've come full circle <laughs> on carbon barrels. Uh, generally, I, I think that the more steel in the barrel, the better it shoots. That's a really good statement. You know, get, <laughs> we have a fucking, that is really good. Plane. You have, Look at you the have diplomat. come leaps and fucking bounds. <laughs> He's a diplomat nice. now. Nice. Well, generally. And uh, what did he say? Say it again. The more Wayne. steel. The, the more steel, steel in, the in the barrel, the better. That's the better. Beautiful. Yeah. That Very down. diplomatic. Were you on that debate last night? <laughs> no. No, that, that was wild. I am. Um, when I started doing load development, I you know, came to the company February 21. I hated carbon wrap barrels because I'd say it seemed like 30% of them would just, I mean, they were two inch barrels no matter what we did. And we, we tried and just couldn't get, and just two inches at 100 yards, not the distance. Then when I started chambering the barrels here, we quit having problems with carbon wrap barrels. And I think it has to do with how we set up the barrel in the lathe. And I've come to the point now where they're probably okay. There's some I like better than others. Some brands I, I like better than others. But And again, that goes back to just say like the carbon sixes tend to be a little dirty and fussy on the tips. So they're a little more difficult to they're dial difficult in. They're difficult to dial but in. But they always fucking hammer. Well, they hammer. It's just more so from the gunsmith machinist perspective, it takes a little more time. And, and let's just be honest, those guys are nerds and they're picky. Yeah. So if something dials in better like an ace barrel, of course, they're going to like that a little better. But the, car- the carbon six barrels shoot. They do. And uh, one of the things to keep in mind, too, though, is a spiral or diamond fluted. Let's call it a number five contour for most companies. A Ace 700 calls it an muzzle SP3. finish. Yeah, yeah, 700 muzzle. They It weighs, uh, the blanks are about two ounces different between like a, a benchmark Sendero light, which benchmark Sendero light is about like a proof Sendero. <laughs> They're big. real close to the same weight. And then you're going to cut more, you're going to lose more weight off of the steel barrel blank. I do have to concede that the carbon probably looks better. It's got that cool carbon look, mm. but that's the only advantage. It doesn't handle heat better. Carbon fiber may handle it by itself, but when you glue it on, you got carbon fiber resin and steel all expanding, contracting at different rates. Mm-hmm. Um, 
There's all that going on. Plus, it acts as an insulator. So don't get a carbon wrap barrel hot because the same amount of heat's going through as through a steel barrel. It just doesn't radiate out like it's it does. It's basically the opposite of their marketing campaign. Yeah. Well, yeah. But they sold how they they sold that on a bill of goods. Carbon does not hold heat. But the fucking resin holding it together, the glue yeah. certainly does. Yeah. No, I agree. No. And, uh, but we've, we've done okay with carbon wrap barrels. It we've also learned that cut rifled carbon barrels do leave more steel in there than a button rifled carbon barrel. At least, at least they're more consistent. Uh, button rifled barrels <laughs> in general, you know, they push that little football thing through the, the barrel, push or pull it, and it impresses the rifling. And when you're dialing them in, it's real common to see on a 5R, four lands are the same height and the fifth one's not. On a cut rifled barrel, they're all the same. And I think there's less stress. You know, I say all this and it sounds like, oh, butt rifle barrels are terrible. That's not true. They shoot really well. Call it's carbon just, sixes or button yeah. until they move to their new deal and all of mine shoot. Well, and there's well. other brands of steel barrels that are, uh, you know, like Hart and McGowan. Schillen. And they shoot. So it's not a matter of that. You got to sometimes just hear the gunsmith grump and let him go. Well, there's some gunsmiths, <laughs> let's say, that would like exclusively want to use heart barrels. They've been doing it for 30 years. Yeah, and they they're know. They're all button rifled, and it's what they do. They they know what they're going to do, too. They're like, they've got yeah. a huge, you know, body of work on them. They know what those barrels do. I mean, I put a benchmark or a Bart line or a Krieger or an Ace in the lathe, and uh, it's going to dial in in five minutes. I'll have mm -hmm. it running true. The carbon sixes might take me 45 minutes because I'm fussy and, and I don't want to compromise. That's, I can't compromise that. Mm. That's the place where it'll mess it up and it won't shoot. So I, I think what happens is, is a lot of the carbon barrels that aren't as straight as other barrels, mm -hmm. they don't dial it in like we do at the throat. They dial in at the breech and the muzzle. That works fine for most barrels, but I think if the barrel's crooked, I mean, just think about it. If, if you got the muzzle not moving and the breech not moving, that means that chamber area where the throat is is going to be running out a little bit. And that could induce a little bit of misalignment. I say could because, you know, floating reamer holders and this and that and reamer flex and all kinds of stuff. That's the only thing I can think of now that the reason that all the barrels, carbon barrels that we have chambered have shot well. I've had so. four carbon six from you guys and they were great. And I probably had 15 to 20 McGowans at Whaley Precision built or machined up for me and they've shot great yeah we probably obsess over more than we should but that's the approach we want in building these guns that's the guy you want on the lathe the guy that's not going to compromise and is going to take that extra time to make sure it's right mm. stays up at night thinking about shit yeah that's the guy i want <laughs> blaine painter <laughs> i got taylor in the same same thought process oh he's got nerd in his jeans yeah. <laughs> yes yes that's what you want Oh, anything else? Anything else? Pet, 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 anything else you want to say to your fans? Every time I bring up your name, they're like, oh, I like, I like that Blaine guy. <laughs> well, I try, I try to take time and, and talk to guys and explain what I know. And if I don't know, I'll tell them and try to help them just because it's this is their favorite thing to do. Mm -hmm. And we got to remember that. I mm -hmm. mean, it's still one of our favorite things to do as well. You do it every day. Maybe it loses a little bit of sparkle. But still, think about it. We come in here and we... We don't get in trouble for talking about guns all day at work. Mm -hmm. And playing with them. Yeah. I mean. Uh, how, Put that gun away. <laughs> yeah. We don't, you know, 
There's so many guns walking around. <laughs> Everybody's open laugh. carrying, yep. concealed carrying. You're playing with a rifle in front of you. You got three ARs being painted, and yeah, and, uh, yeah. And talking about all the theory and all, all the stuff that that's that's really cool. Almost everybody well, here is passionate about either guns or hunting. There may yeah. be, there may be one it exception. Is. Both. Well, then you have a guy like Mark come in that owns Ace Barrels, and him and Blaine get talking, and there's like. Whoa, there's Mark, a lot of shit going on. Mark is an oracle of information. We're going to get him on next. I, I just, I mean, I just, every time he comes in and, and I get him to talk and he's just like, oh my God, he's Mark, been doing Mark this. is the owner of Ace Barrels yeah, in, I, in Spokane. He knows a lot about barrels. And Sammy does. and the history of fucking oh, yeah. and the, how metal is smelted and where the good metal and old metal and new metal and some metal has <laughs> yeah. radioactive particles in it. And holy shit. <laughs> Pre-atom bomb metal. Yes. Yeah. Post-atom bomb metal. Yeah. And the air is important, too. Yeah. I'd never even heard I, that, no, but it I makes sense. Either. Yeah. Yeah. He's a gem. Mm. Yeah. Well, is that, is that all we got? It's good to go. All right, thanks for listening. Please go subscribe to our YouTube channel. We need more YouTube subscribers to continue offering you content. We do. Please go. And we're going to have easy. We're going to have more than podcasts on there pretty soon. We already have the Bear Hunt, we have Go into Peterson, we have the the uh, Night Force Still Challenge, we have yep. the teaser, we have the full video coming. Please go subscribe to that. Yes. All right. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>